Volume One, Chapter Fifteen of Garcia Marino by Augustin Berth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. One Against All, eighteen sixty four. At the beginning of eighteen sixty four, Garcia Marino began to ask himself if it were possible, humanly speaking, to continue the struggle against all the revolutionary elements within and without. So hopeless did the issue appear to him that on the tenth of January he announced his intention of retiring into private life. But such an explosion of protests and tears from people of every class followed his announcement that he was compelled to give up the idea. Encouraged by this demonstration, he set to work with renewed energy, convoked the chambers for a special session to submit the new treaty with Colombia for their approbation, and to elect his vice-president in the place of Barrero, the minister Carvajal, who was his personal friend, and who was eventually elected by five thousand votes, amidst the cheers of the people, and in spite of the revolutionists of every shade. The good were beginning to be really hopeful, when a scandalous verdict of the High Court of Justice brought about a fresh crisis. We remember the arrest of the conspirators at the time of Miss Guerra's invasion. There was no doubt whatever of their guilt or of their treasonable practices, and in fact, Molinero's owned that Espinel had promised the president of New Granada that he would raise the revolution in Ecuador. But the court declared that their actions could not be looked upon as treason, but only as a fruitless attempt at rebellion, which was not therefore punishable by the Constitution. Garcia Moreno, justly indignant, instantly sent in his resignation to the Congress, declaring that after the court had trampled all law and justice underfoot by declaring that known traitors were innocent, he could only give up the task of government. Then he produced his plan for the revision of the Constitution, and ended with these words, Before everything else, I beg you will accept my resignation of the post which you had confided to me. Patriotism and honor compelled me to remain when our country was menaced by the enemy. Now that peace is re-established, you cannot prevent my seeking a little rest in the calm of private life. If I have committed any faults in the exercise of my powers, you will be my judges. If you feel that I have not neglected anything which would develop the prosperity of the Republic, the satisfaction of having fulfilled my duty will remain to me, and it is the only one for which I seek. These noble words produced an extraordinary effect on the chambers. Even those who had been prejudiced against him changed their minds before his entire self-abnegation. The members, one and all, refused to accept his resignation. To prove their earnestness, they instantly voted all the different changes in the laws proposed in his message, and declared that until his term of office was expired, Ecuador would not hear of a change of precedent. This unexpected end of the struggle exasperated the socialists to the last degree, and failing all other means, they resolved to resort to the dagger as the only way of getting rid of Garcia Moreno. A plot was formed, of which General Thomas Maldonado was the head, and in which Espinel and all the other conspirators who had been acquitted by the courts took part. Their plan was to massacre their opponents, to pillage the town of Guayaquil, and to burn it in case of resistance. Garcia Marina fortunately got wind of the plot, came in person to Guayaquil, and arrested the whole body. The judges this time did not fail to condemn them to death. But Garcia Marino, perhaps imprudently, pardoned them, after having exacted first an oath of fidelity for the future. Maldonado, wishing to excuse himself for having tampered with the garrison, Garcia Marino stopped him by saying, I wish to hear nothing more. I forgive you. But if you take to any fresh conspiracy, general as you are, I will have you shot in the square of Quito. On the 23rd of June, however, only three months after this act of clemency, these wretches organized a fresh plot in Quito to assassinate the president. 
Their plan was to take possession of the artillery barracks, where certain brigands had been incarcerated, who were to be paid by Maldonado to take advantage of the darkness of the night, to assassinate not only Garcia Moreno, but all the others who were devoted to his policy. An old urbanist, Jeremillo, who was aide-de-camp to Garcia Moreno, was to betray his master. The officer on guard had sold himself to Maldonado, and when the murder had been accomplished, Urbina was to be declared chief of the state, and Maldonado general-in-chief, while the revolutionists from Peru were to invade the provinces on the sea-coast. On the day when this frightful conspiracy was to take effect, the conspirators met in a certain house to combine measures before going to the barracks. At that very moment, one of their number, seized with remorse, revealed to the president all the details of the conspiracy. Garcia Moreno flew to the barracks and summoned the officer on guard. "'I give you five minutes,' he said calmly, "'to reveal the names of your accomplices and to give me proofs in writing of the plot which was to be carried out this night.' If not, I will have you shot instantly as an infamous traitor. Finding himself discovered, the unhappy officer tremblingly gave the names of his accomplices, delivered over the papers of which he had been the depository, and pointed out the house where the assassins were assembled at that moment. Garcia Marina might have waited for them at the barracks and received them with a fusillade, but not to give these wretches a pretext of saying they had been caught in a trap, he preferred seizing them in the house where they were and throwing them into prison. Unfortunately, the arrest took place before the arrival of Maldonado, who, the moment he got wind of the failure of the plot, disappeared from the city and took refuge in the forest. Garcia Moreno, feeling the imminence of the danger, was determined this time to punish the leader of these crimes. Maldonado must expiate his sin, he exclaimed. I will stifle the revolution in his blood. He ordered Colonel Ventimilla to scour the whole country till he had found the culprit, while he contented himself with sending his accomplices in exile to Brazil. The revolutionists, more enraged than ever, now poured into the country from every side. A band of pirates, equipped by Rabina, threw themselves into the province of Manabi, destroying everything with fire and sword. The governor Salazar, however, met them with a body of volunteers, massacred the greater portion of the brigands, and shot their leaders. The exiles from Brazil crossed the Napo, seized the governor, and tortured the Jesuits, and issued a proclamation deposing Garcia Moreno and putting Urbina in his place. Another attack was made on Ibarra, while Urbina, with some Peruvian vessels, landed at Paita and ravaged the sea-coast. In the midst of this fearful storm, Garcia Moreno remained as calm as a rock beaten by the waves, raising troops, organizing defenses, and determined rather to die with his people than to yield to the anti-Christian and revolutionary horde. At last, on the 24th of August, Maldonado was captured and brought in chains to Quito. Garcia Marina did not hesitate this time, and decreed that he should be shot on the 30th of August in the square of St. Dominic. The night before, he went into his cell and tried to make him understand the atrocity of his crime, but he found only a man proud of his iniquities and still confident of escape. Maldonado, he exclaimed at last, you need not reckon on judges who laugh at justice and absolve the greatest culprits. Prepare yourself to appear before God, for tomorrow at this hour you will have ceased to live. Maldonado knew the implacable firmness of his chief, and at once asked for a priest and made his confession. The execution was fixed for five o'clock, and Colonel Dalgo received orders to place the troops in line the whole length of the road from the prison to the scaffold. While these sinister preparations were being made, the whole town was in a state of agitation. The moment was critical. 
for both citizens and soldiers were interested in Madonado, and still more in his family, who were much respected. Deputations upon deputations flew to the palace to intercede for the culprit, but Garcia Marina had closed his doors. Madonado's wife had come to take leave of him at the foot of the scaffold, which added to the emotion of the lookers-on. The word, pardon, flew from mouth to mouth, till Colonel Dalgo, anxious for the result, sent his aide-de-camp to Garcia Marino to ask him for his last orders. "'Tell him,' replied the President, "'that if at five o'clock I do not hear the bells which announce that the execution is over, he will be shot instead.' A few minutes after, Maldonado mounted the scaffold and paid for his infamous treason with his life. The crowd was dispersing in silence and fear when all of a sudden Garcia Moreno came out of his palace, alone and unattended, to inspect some works going on outside the town. In the evening he put out the following proclamation. People of Ecuador, your peace, your goods, and even your lives have been too long threatened by criminals whom Peruvian gold has corrupted and who imagine they can sin with impunity. In this terrible crisis the government must choose between two extremes to allow your dearest interests, your laws, your most sacred rights to be sacrificed to these brigands, or to take upon itself the grave but glorious responsibility of checking their fury by measures which are just, though severe, terrible but necessary. I should be unworthy of the confidence you have placed in me if I were to hesitate for one moment to incur this responsibility to save my country from anarchy and ruin. Thus, let everyone know and understand that those who have sold themselves for gold will fall under the lead of the avenger. Punishment will follow upon crime, and to the perils with which we are threatened, justice will bring safety. If my life were to be sacrificed to obtain this result, I should immolate it gladly to procure for my country happiness and peace. Naturally, the revolutionists cried out, against his tyranny, cruelty, and the like. To confound them, Garcia Marina published a statement of Urbina's drawn up by his minister Espinel. Generosity and clemency towards the enemies of our country are mistaken virtues. Compassion towards individuals must be exchanged for justice, should the safety of the people exchange it. Great malefactors must suffer, in this world, the punishment of their crimes, both public safety and justice demand it. Maldonado, being thus disposed of, the President turned his arms against Urbina, who, with four hundred or five hundred bandite, occupied the town of Manchala, with his three great captains, Robles, Franco, and Leon, he flattered himself he should raise the whole country, and issued a proclamation in which he declared that, summoned by the great majority of the nation, he presented himself without fear, persuaded that his return would fill the hearts of all patriots with joy. He found himself mistaken, however, as the inhabitants fled at his approach, and no one could be found to sign his proclamation but some wretched criminals, and others terrorized into compliance. Then Garcia Moreno put forth a decree which annihilated all his hopes. Ecuador, wrote the President, is at war with no one, either within or without. Consequently, Urbina and his venditti, who have come to revolutionize and pillage the country, must be looked upon as corsairs and treated as such. The authorities will not apply the law against them as belligerents, but as incendiaries and assassins. The men sent against Urbina had, in fact, orders to use every means to arrest the traitor Urbina, so as to make him expiate his many crimes on the scaffold. Urbina, however, thinking discretion, the better part of valor, retreated upon Loja, so as to gain the frontier of Peru. His friend, Robles, followed his example and escaped to Peta. Franco and Leon, who alone remained at Guayaquil, 
were ignominiously defeated at Santa Rosa and fled to Zapatillo, from whence they also escaped to their good friends in Peru. Thus this revolution, so carefully prepared, came to nothing, and the urbanists, although assisted by two governments and by all the villains in the country, had been conquered by the energy of one man. Garcia Moreno then made a tour of all the provinces, distributing rewards to those who had been faithful, but punishing severely the accomplices of Urbina. One of them, Camper Verde, had attacked the unarmed town of Cuenca, but the inhabitants rose in mass, and after a bloody fight succeeded in seizing him. Condemned to death, Garcia Moreno was entreated to pardon him, the bishop even pleading his cause. "'If you ask of me in the name of justice,' replied the president, "'show me that this man is not guilty. If it be from charity, have pity on the innocent people whom you will condemn to perish, for if I spare him, a fresh revolution will break out to-morrow.' Camper Verde was accordingly executed. Garcia Moreno showed the same invincible firmness in dealing with Colombia and Peru, both of which states had armed and equipped bands of rebels to attack Ecuador, with whom they pretended to be at peace. Both had the humiliation of seeing their conduct exposed by all the diplomatic powers, and by finding their policy overthrown by the honorable and straightforward proceedings of Garcia Moreno, who had suspended all relations with the government of Peru. Thus this horrible four-year struggle was, at last, ended by the courage of one man, against all the efforts of the Freemasons and Socialists, not only in his own country, but throughout the republics of South America. The Concordat was established, social reforms had been carried out, material progress was in full development, religious education ensured, the army restored to a state of discipline, and all this in spite of the treason of Maldonado, the invasions of Urbina, the treachery of Castilla, and the fury of Mesquera. Seeking only for God and his justice, Garcia Marina had triumphed over all. Nothing remained to the revolutionists but the hope of replacing, when his term of office had expired, the colossus whom they had tried in vain to overturn. End of Part 2, Chapter 15